Welcome to the Connection Podcast. I'm Jason Keister, the show's producer, here with hosts Drew Boreen and Lexi DeLuna. Let's get ready to connect with somebody new today. Welcome to the Connection Podcast. This is Jason Keister. I'm interviewing one of my favorite people, uh, Reed Stockwell. Some of you know him as Bishop Stockwell of Springfield First Ward. Say hi, Reed. Hello. Reed, what is it like when you get called as a bishop? Uh, you are uh, overwhelmed. Uh, what would we say? What was the other phrase I wanted to use for it? Um, well, anyway, I, I, I felt like I felt like uh, the first six months I was dressed in a clown costume up on the pulpit. You just feel so out of place and uh, just unprepared for the position and the responsibilities and the trust of the members, I guess. And could you help us understand a little bit where you're coming from when you say you felt out of place or in that calling, just to, to help us understand better what was going on personally through your mind? Um, just, you know, it's, a, it's the last place you think you're going to be. You've, you've watched other bishops. They're, they're great people and uh, influencers for good. And um, it's just a surprise. It's a shock to the system. Um, you know, you're trying to live your life right, but yeah, nobody would wish that on his worst enemy, let alone a good friend. <laughs> and, and so, you know, next next thing you know, you're sitting up there, and you're the, you're responsible for all the good and the bad that happens in your ward. You know, and it's just it's a shock. Yeah. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly and, and the feeling like you're sitting in a clown suit is is very relatable as well. Well, and I wore one for the first three months, so it worked out good. It was weird. It was that Penny Worth, that guy from that. <laughs> and a okay. tie, but I did have a tie on too, so it worked out okay. Oh my God. They, see, this is what I love. And this is what <laughs> some people may not know that I see regularly about Reed Stockwell, the bishop is his sense of humor. And you even mentioned in our show notes that one thing I could do to make you feel more comfortable is to not wear plaid. Exactly. Well, I, I'll let you know, Reed, that I'm sitting here in my sweatpants, my Oregon hoodie, and my Crocs. <laughs> that makes sense, the Crocs especially. And like I said, I bet I bet they're tie-dyed. Um, actually, no, but I, I do have those on standby in case I wear this pair out. Awesome. You're easier to find in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> well, Reed, the, the podcast has evolved a little bit. We started as a ward podcast, and now we're interviewing people from the stake and beyond. For the people who don't know you, can you give an intro and, and let them know who you are and how you got to here this area? Sure. It sounds repetitious because Jason and I have tried, I think this is trial number four to start the podcast. But anyway, Fourth time's a, the, a charm, right? It's yeah. the charm. And uh, I was born in Southern California, uh, in Santa Monica, California. My family moved to, Fon let's see, Santa Monica to Fontana. Fontana is about 50 miles east of Los Angeles. It's a nice, it's a nice community. It's kind of the same size as Springfield was when I moved here about 50,000 people, but now it's 250,000 people because all hell broke loose in California and I don't know what happened. Anyway, moved there with my family. <laughs> What's that? I'm just laughing. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry. 
Um, we, let's see, we were a family of seven, my mom and dad and my uh, brother and three sisters, uh, went to school there, high school, a year of college at Chafee and, and, uh, and, uh, I can't even remember where it's at now. Anyway. And then in 1974, my mom wanted, to, I was in college. My mom wanted to move my sisters out of the area and she got a job up here as a probation officer. So she moved up here with them. And during our move, my sister was killed in an accident we had with a U-Haul truck. And um, I decided to stay and help my mom and sister get settled here. And then I kind of, I got stuck here for a little bit, met a beautiful girl and uh, you know, the rest is history. What was it that originally made you want to stay in the area? Oh, uh, I love the nature of the, I, uh, to me, the forests and, and the rivers and everything. I, I was an outdoor kid in California. You did scouts and all that and loved the mountains, uh, but never saw anything like this that was, I mean, out your back door. I, I live on the Mackenzie Rivers right now, so I'm out my back door is the biggest playground I've ever had. And so just to be able to fly fish, snowboard, golf, backpack, mountain climb, do all the stuff I want to do, it's right here at my fingertips. So that was the first thing that attracted me to it. And then I met my sweetheart at church one day, and uh, the rest is, uh, I ruined her life after that. It just... <laughs> It's been downhill for her ever since. Would Tony agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what was the meat story with Tony? How, how did you guys meet? Um, you guys I, was, I was inactive when I moved here, and uh, somehow my mom talked me in coming to church to just keep her company one Sunday, and my little sister was uh, about 17, and um, my uh, I was sitting in the in the pew and looking up and there was this beautiful brunette sitting next to my sister in the uh, um, choir seats. And I was just started kind of pointing at my sister going, who's that? Who's that? And uh, she kind of pointed out the girl next to me. She, yeah. I said, yeah. So anyway, she took mouth to me that her name was Tony. And I thought I got to meet that girl. And, I, and so I was this long hair, hippie kid. Uh, and I walked right up to her after the meeting and I just said, hi, my name is Reed Stockwell. And she thought I was the most pompous, arrogant guy that there ever was. She's like, wow, big deal, you know? And so anyway, I introduced myself to her and then that was the last I saw of her for about two weeks. And then I went, I borrowed a tennis racket off her a couple weeks later. Just, I don't know. I'm not sure what I was doing. It was my, my, uh, my, uh, novel approach to a relationship anyway borrowed a tennis racket but i didn't invite her to go to play tennis with me just wanted to just wanted the racket let her know that you know, <laughs> I don't know. i'm here yeah i'm here and uh <laughs> anyway you you'll be seeing me you know anyway <laughs> anyway got to got to know her we dated about two weeks after that and uh within about two weeks after we started dating i was i was 19 then and i realized this is the girl I want to marry. And uh, not being an active member of the church for the last three years of my life, I still had the desire that the only marriage that was going to work for me was going to be a temple marriage. So that's 
that's kind of how that started. But we were engaged three times and dated for two years. And uh, she had a full ride scholarship to BYU. She was an athlete. And I was uh, just some hippie kid from California. So I had to really sell her sell her up really big time to, to talk her out of that beautiful life she had ahead of her. <laughs> so we already know you see Tony, she's this beautiful girl sitting in church. What else attracted to you or uh, attracted her to you when you when you first met? What what did you like about her personality and other things? Oh well, she was. Uh, I I was by that time when we started dating. Um, I'd had some experience after my sister's death, rather spiritually powerful. And one thing I noticed about Tony joined the church as a high school kid at 15 years old and had her own independent testimony. She was, she knew what she wanted to do. She was locked into the gospel, learning it still, but she was solid. And so I think that's attracted me to her that this wasn't some flighty uh, person who didn't really know what's going on. And, you know, she independently of her whole family was the only member of the church. And, uh, and as I gained, as I gained my testimony, I appreciated what she had. And, um, and I, I was just sold on her. She was just, she was smart. She was, uh, um, like I said, she was an elite athlete, a uh, collegiate, uh, high school and, uh, regional diver for, uh, the uh, Junior Olympics. And so she was not only super healthy, but she was well-rounded in, in uh, her education, her spirit and everything else. So I was just smitten with her, but I tried not to let her know that. I tried to be <laughs> cool. too cool for school. And then you guys, you guys do eventually get married in the temple about how long is that process of dating and then and then eventually getting married oh yeah we were on on and off we were actually on for two years dating solid and then she decided she was going to take her scholarship to byu left uh, we broke off the, she broke off the engagement went to byu spent one night there came back to her mom and dad's uh hotel and said i'm going home to marry reed so you can imagine her dad was just so tickled with me <laughs> we were best friends from that moment on. And uh, so she gave up her BYU athletic and, and uh, uh, scholastic scholarship for this kid that came from California that her dad just, he abhorred me, I'm sure. I mean, he had every reason to. I, you know, I stopped her future progress as a, 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 a as a, uh, Educa educator or whatever she was going to be. So anyway, so she, we, it took about two years and she came home and said, we're going to get married. And I think that was in September and we were married in December 13th of 1975. Cool. Yeah. And you're going to the temple. Yeah, um, we were, yeah. We were married in the Oakland temple in California and, uh, and have been married now for 47 years. And it's been awesome. At least and that was one of that was one of the things you said you were most proud of is the temple marriage. Um, could you tell us some more about why that's so important to you and, and why it's one of the things you look back on and, and you're most proud of? Well, first thing is my parents were divorced and I didn't kind of get that. I, you know, why would somebody marry somebody and then not stick with it? And, but I, my dad had problems and he was, 
he was an alcoholic and he had issues. And for me to be able to have the girl of my dreams, literally, and I mean, I dated a lot of girls in California when I was growing up. Uh, to, uh, she was a beauty and is a beauty. I had the girl of my choice, member of the church, uh, mother of four children. Um, to me, I, I've had the best of the best. And uh, I just, you know, to be able to start your marriage out on the ground of a temple marriage and have a companion like her that supports me in everything I do. I mean, I couldn't be a bishop if it wasn't for her. I couldn't be, I couldn't have associations with my family if it wasn't for her. She supports me in everything, everything I do. She bought me golf clubs. She buys me fly rods. She, I mean, you know, th besides that, but I mean, this is, this is a person who, who uh, has loved me for all my warts and stuck by me through thick and thin and has the same dreams that we do and uh, that I that I do. And we just, you know, it it just isn't any better than that. It is the plan of salvation. It's having a companion that you can count on and trust and be with forever and to have an eternal family. Um, and it's because she wants it. You know, that she she wants that life. I want that life. And and all I can say is we're radically different than each other in so many ways. But it yeah. complements. I'm grateful that we are actually. I'm glad. I'm grateful that we are come from two different places, and all these um, these differences make us what we are. That's well said, and totally agree with what you're saying. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, Reed, because about forty about forty percent of our show is uh, youth and and people who may not be married. What advice would you give to somebody who is preparing for that phase of life where they would be dating and, and finding an eternal companion, uh, things to look for, uh, ways to prepare yourself? Well, uh, first of all, first and foremost is uh, you better have a very strong, powerful testimony of the gospel yourself because it's not easy being a member of the church. It's a, it's a struggle. Um, it requires a lot of discipline. And, and many of those, I'll, I'll say, are acquired. As life goes on, you'll gain them. And that's good. But if you can get them up front, uh, do so. But when you look for somebody, you have to understand that after you put down all of the um, characteristics of that person that just are, you know, the best of the best of the best that you realize maybe you're not worth it, that you're not worth a person that good. And I have to admit, and I'd say, Jason, you know, we always marry over our heads. Sure. At least yeah. as men, but you have to do that. You have to give yourself a chance and you have to give yourself one of the best people in the world, even if you're not quite there yourself, but you just have to promise yourself that you're going to get there. And so um, I'd say, Fundamentally, you have you have to be a strong uh, disciple of the Savior. You have to pray independently, not rely upon your wife to push you down that road. You have to read scriptures because you love reading the scriptures. You have to go to church because you know that's where you're supposed to be, and and you're going to grow and you're going to make mistakes. I know that you have to say I'm sorry a lot because. Uh, 
you make mistakes. And when you do, um, if like I love the one saying in a marriage, it says, uh, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? And so, <laughs> And and I would and I want to be both, and that didn't doesn't work out that much. But occasionally she she'll tell me I'm right, and I just make her repeat it out loud. But um, I think it's it's so important to just be humble enough that this is the person you want to be with forever. And if you want that, you've got to approach it like uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 122 talks about uh, the characteristics of a righteous priesthood holder. And so for any young men that are out there listening to this, read Dr. Dr. Covenant section 122, where it talks about being meek and humble. And, and uh, let's see, what is it? I would, I'd repeat it, but I, I, I um, but it talks about the characteristics of a person that has the spirit. And if you, if you look at any relationship that's going wrong and you read 122nd section of DNC, um, I think it's, close to verse 46, it talks about the characteristics of a righteous priesthood holder. And if you have it, you're going to be okay. If you if you have charity and humility and love unfeigned and slow to anger, and uh, if, you do, if you're that kind of person in a marriage, I guarantee you it's going to work because that draws you back to center every time and realizes that, you know, you have to overcome the natural man to be able to have a relationship with someone that's going to be eternal. And you want to treat a person that way. You want to make sure that they get the best of you, even though they're going to get the worst of you too. You know, there's times where you're just not going to be that person. But if you can ground yourself in that and always return to that, uh, your, your life is going to be blessed and your sweetheart is going to understand that you're a work in progress and she's going to help you get there. And I think that's that's kind of fundamental to it. Yeah. And then one thing that resonated a lot with me was when you said when you're not your best to admit that and say you're sorry. I okay. I grew up in an era, I think, where your parents are never wrong. It, what mom and dad says goes. But for me, some of the most tender moments with my kids is where I have set them down and I, maybe I messed up on something and I had to say I was wrong and I, I should have done that differently. And um, it, same thing with, with my wife. You know, when I say I was wrong and, and I messed up, I, I think those are some of the best moments as a family we've had. Oh, yeah, because we're bound to. I, we were sent, you know, I, I believe we were sent here to, make mistakes. We weren't sent here to fail. We were sent here to make mistakes and improve our, uh, upon ourselves and upon our errors. And that's what the atonement's all about. It was, it's necessary because, because mistakes are necessary. The only way we're going to grow is when we realize our error or our faults and improve ourselves. And we, you know, that we take, take the effort and realize who we are. And, and it doesn't just happen once, it happens a million times. I mean, this life is just full of errors, but I always think that if you're gonna fall and you're climbing a hill and you're gonna fall, fall into the hill, don't fall backwards. You know, don't tumble down the hill and start over again. Fall into the hill, push yourself up, 
move forward back up the hill and i mean and that's 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 that earthly struggle that we have we're not going to be perfect and fortunately that's how it is the savior will compensate for it he has he has paid the price already we're going to be redeemed we just get to be in the best school that there's ever been in this earth life and i'll just tell you this this most important thing about marriage is that if you if you don't have the opportunity to get married, it's really hard. If you do have the opportunity to get married, it will be one of the most amazing schools you've ever been to. You will learn things about yourself and about life that you don't get if you don't get married. And that it just happens to be how it is. It's not, it's not a inequality. It, it is just what it is, is that <laughs> whether it's cleaning a baby's diaper and butt off at three in the morning, or it's, you know, or, you know, doing whatever you have to do. You just have to go through these things and they make your capacity increases for everything. If you have let these experiences go, um, it's, it's kind of a sad thing, but if you take advantage of it and jump in the middle of it, when this, the time's right, you will have the most amazing schooling of your existence, and it'll it'll exceed anything you could do. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, Reed, I, I wanted to dive into some other subjects, if that's okay. Yep, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about your love for Oregon and the natural beauty here you you have a lot of hobbies too I, many yeah too many. what are what, what would we find you doing on a random saturday what's what's, <laughs> what's your what's your day off look like well I, my my day off is and there's way too many choices i'll just tell you what my perfect day is on my birthday it usually runs around the memorial day weekend and I get up at the crack of dawn, and I mean the crack of dawn before the sun's up, and I get on the golf course with my best friends, Jason and the clan of the clan of maniacs, and we, <laughs> and we and we golf and we make fun of each other and we have a blast. And then I come home and I get on the river and I get my riverboat out and I go fly fish until about dark. And then I come home and my wife and I go out and do something together. And to me, that's the best of the yeah, I could ever ask for. I mean, it's just how life should be lived. Uh, if, you know, I, the two of the things I love to do, I, you know, I, I like to snowboard and mountain, mountain bike and mountain climb and stuff like that too. But if I had, if I have my two choices, I'll be golfing, fishing, and then a hot date with my wife and I'm in, I'm in heaven. Yeah. I love that. And Reed, tell people for for those who don't know how old you are. Uh, like I said, I'm 69 this year, so I'll turn 69 yeah. in May. So I'd I'd like to share a couple of things I've I've learned from you. First off, is it, it's a little cliche to say age is just a number, but it, if you have stuff you love that you can do, you you've taught me that you can keep doing it. You, oh, yeah. you and uh, there's no set time where you know you you have to just hang them up you know if, if if you have something that you love fight for it keep doing it yep um the other thing i've learned from you is even if you're middle age and you're in the struggle with kids and stuff like that 
you don't just have to be friends with people your own age. Like, absolutely not. It can be awesome to connect with somebody that's 20, 30 years older than you. And I'll, two things I'll say that I've learned from you is that it's less the number of the age and it's more your personality. You know, you click with people that are the same personality and there may be somebody a lot like you who's a little further along in life. Um, yeah, and Kimber, Kimber Johnson is my senior by 15 years, and uh, he's our patriarch, but he's one of my best friends also, and he, he's, uh, he's completely different than me. He, he was an uh, intro, introvert, <clears throat> and I'm probably on the extrovert scale. I was going to say, that's not you. <laughs> and and I, I just love Kimber, and Kimber and I spend so much time fly fishing and doing other stuff, too. We, we walk together and talk, and uh, we, uh, when COVID was on, I got to spend about a year and a half with Kimber. We would go for walks every day and just talk about just stuff. Some of it's fly fishing, some of it was golf, but mostly about life and all the neat stuff he's learned and the experience he had. And those of you who don't know Kimber, our patriarch, he is just the most amazing man who... Uh, Boy, if you really knew what his life was like when he was a kid growing up, you would um, feel sorry for him. You would look at yourself and say, man, I'm so blessed. But Kimber is one of the most rock solid people I have ever met. And I was in his bishopric about, uh, wow, 20 some years ago. And he told me a, a great lesson. He said, if you're not having fun in this life, you're doing something wrong. And I, I was a fun loving guy. So that really resonated with me. And and maybe that became a mantra is that, and I, and my wife would say, I'm having too much fun, <laughs> but I, I believe it. And he's, he's uh Kimber is just an, an incredible person. I can understand why he's a patriarch, but he didn't get there without a, so without a lot of struggle. He worked hard to become who he is, even though he never wanted to become a patriarch. He just, he just wanted to be a good guy and he is a great guy too. So it, uh, Jason said, it's who you surround yourself with and don't let age, um, gender or anything like that stop you from having great relationships with a multitude of people because it'll make you a better person. And, uh, that, that, um, broad spectrum of, people that you have as friends are, are, are just invaluable. Yeah. I love, I love how you put that going back to our golf group. I, I think some people don't know how crazy it gets because how early do you try to get out there? And <laughs> well, we've had five thirty mornings. I like, I like it in the morning. We <laughs> like the first light many, and we've been out there a couple of times when the full moon is still out and there's more light from the moon than there is from uh, dawn breaking. And it's just, it is the most hilarious. One of the things I'll appreciate so much out of this life is the friendship of hiking the golf course with six or eight brethren from the church and non-members too, other people, and just being out there having the time of our life and maybe playing good golf occasionally. But just being with these people is, uh, it's it's the value of it is immeasurable. It's just amazing. Reed, do you have any golf stories that come to mind 
right off the bat to share it with people. If you don't, that's fine. Oh, I should. You should remind me of some. I mean, crud, we've 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 done some pretty goofy things. Oh, I got hit. Yeah, that's right. Who was it that hit me? Um, yeah, I got hit in the. That was, wasn't that Dave Campbell? Uh, they, yeah, Dave Campbell hit me in the thumb with a golf ball, and I was walking up to make to put my ball, and he, I thought he broke my thumb. And I played better golf that day than I've ever played, so I realized I don't need my thumb to play golf. <laughs> I I was there for your you, first, you, first you and only it. yeah I was, <laughs> and I was there for your first and only hole in one as well. Oh, that's true. You yeah, that's right. I that cost me a lot of money. What did you end up getting for people? Did you what did you do after the hole in one? I, I, I had to buy breakfast burritos. Did you know it was a hole in one when when you hit it or no? Jose Jose saw me hit the ball. You were right below us on the next tee, and I hit it over your head. Maybe I was aiming at you, but I hit it over you onto the green. It rolled back and uh, went into the shadow, and I didn't see it. And Jose said, "I think that went in the hole." And I was just like, "Yeah, whatever, whatever." Went up there, and uh, Burke Burke's ball, Bishop Bishop Alston's ball, was about two feet from the cup. And we, I went to pick it up, and I thought it was mine. It wasn't, and I looked in the hole, and there was my ball. And it was like that is just crazy, because I know it's not skill; it's luck. <laughs> you do occasionally have that luck with you. It's good. <laughs> See, I I feel like playing golf with you guys is some of the best times ever. But like, you learn some life lessons quickly by playing golf. Am I am I wrong on that? Or well, yeah, your family has been fed many times because I've hit bad shots and I've had to buy breakfast burritos for you uh, many times over. I think you've taken at least four burritos home. Jason and I play uh, for uh, uh, we'll call it a KP or yeah, we'll call it a KP. But if we don't get on the green and the other person does, you owe that person a breakfast burrito. Well, I think uh, the Keister family's been fed a number of times by Bishop Stockwell's lousy golf. Oh yeah, they call you a Papa Reed here. Papa now. Reed. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think there's a lot of good life lessons to be learned from golf, and and one thing that I've learned is, I came into that group when you you guys invited me to play years ago as somebody who was ultra competitive, although I don't show it, and just. I only enjoyed things when I was doing well and beating other people. And what I've learned over the years is you can gain so much more joy by enjoying somebody else's success. And when I saw you hit the hole in one, when I see other people succeed now, I get more joy and pleasure out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. It's, and I, I'd say that's part of the golf and you're right, Jason golf itself is the most unique sport. A lot of people call it old man sport or whatever, but it's most unique because how many times are you sitting there hoping that the guy next to you that you're playing against hits a great shot and recognizing that shot and not feeling like it's costing you anything to say what yeah. that was awesome. I mean, what sport does that? You know, no, and I think that teaches you something about life, right? Mm -hmm. being, being happy for your friend who gets the promotion, or yeah, for the, yeah, that's an abundance mentality, and that's what the gospel's all about, right? The gospel's all about 
not the fact that I'm clawing my way over that ladder to heaven and I'm stepping on the hands and heads of my brothers and sisters to get there ahead of them. It's just the opposite. It's if I do get there and on my way there, I'm helping lift them to the next rung, helping them get closer to the heavenly father and helping them get to, you know, to their, to their point of perfection. Just, you know, that's, that's why they're synonymous. You know, you can golf has so many attributes that are consistent with, with the gospel. At least that's what I tell myself. And I try to sell that to Tony and she doesn't buy into it all the time, but you know. Well, I, I like the parallel too in golf of if, if I get lost, if I have a shot that goes awry and I'm in the woods, I just need to get back in the fairway as quick as possible. That's right. Punch out to the fairway. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a life parallel there too. You know, oh, yeah. you track, it's, it's like, stop the heroics. Just, Go back to the basics that you knew before. <laughs> Absolutely. Fundamentals, um, too. Yep. But I think it's a good time to tell your fly rod story, talking about your other hobbies. Well, this, yeah, I love to fly fish. And I was, fortunately, I had the day with the patriarch out on the water. And he and I were at a lake uh, this last summer. Most amazing time. I mean, it, again, he and I, crack of the dawn, kind of, we got out there a little later, eight o'clock. My get out to a place where we wanted to fish, anchored our boat on this dead, calm, beautiful lake with Mount Bachelor in the foreground. The sisters are right there. And so we are in, we are in heaven. And Kimber and I just, we, I've fed him. We've had, a, I, I kind of make sure I take care of Kimber on all my trips. So we're out on the middle of the lake, eight o'clock in the morning. My first cast is out on the water. And I turn around to grab my other rod because we get to use multiple rods. I go to grab my other rod. Right at that moment, my rod jumps out of the boat with a fish on it that's jumping in the air. <laughs> and I've got that much, a split second to make a decision. Am I going to lose that rod or or just watch it go away? And I, I leapt out of the boat. I jumped out of the boat, caught the fly rod midair, went in the water, came up with it in my hand, set the hook handed the rod to Kimber. He had no idea where I was because he had his back to me. I handed him the rod, told him to keep the fish on. I crawled into the back of the boat, um, got in there, got the rod from him, got the fish in, took a picture of it, released the fish. And then I turned around to grab my other rod that I was reaching for. And I found out I had thrown it out of the boat when I jumped after my other rod. And it was a brand new rod that I had just made for this special trip in to Reno to fish this one big lake. And it was a carbon fire. It's a very valuable rod, I, but I built it myself. And it was at the bottom of the lake. And the lake's only about 15 feet deep, but it's got algae in it and it's murky. And, and it's just, I dove the lake. Oh, I swim in the lake every time I go there, but I dove the lake before and it's hard to find anything in that lake. And uh, I was just crushed. And I told Kimber, I said, Kimber, I, I can't lose that rod. And, and I kept looking over the edge, hoping that, you know, that it'd be visible somehow. And if it was, I could swim in and go after it or whatever. And I, here I am dripping wet. I left one of the shoes in, in the boat when I jumped out. But I'm soaked and I'm sitting there looking and realizing, you know, I'm probably going to lose this rod. Well, a, a month before that, we were in uh, Come Follow Me, and it was talking about Elisha and the floating axe head where the, they right. were 
Right. And uh, and I pr- I was praying to Heavenly Father, saying, Heavenly Father, I don't want to lose this rod. And I know it's just a fishing rod, and you know, but it really means something to me, and I'd really like to get it back. And so I thought about that story, and I remember the young man went to the prophet Elisha and said, here's what happened. I need this back. I borrowed that ax head and I borrowed that ax and I, I need that back. And I didn't have a prophet, but I did have the, I did have the patriarch and he was right there. So I went to Kimber and I, I said, Kimber, what should, what should I do? And he said, just take your fishing rod and let a little line out of it and reach down under the boat and kind of wiggle it around there. And maybe you can snag it and get it up. And so, I thought I'm going to do it, and I and sure enough, and this is after two hours of looking for it. So I took that down. I reached down there and wiggled it around a little bit, trying to see if I could hook something and nothing. So I pulled it out. I pulled a little more line out and wiggled it down there. Pulled my rod up, and sure enough, I caught the tip of the rod, and it came right out of the water. And Kim and I just looked at each other like, "You got to be kidding me!" And I grabbed that thing, and it was like, "That is amazing." I mean, it to me, it, it, I prayed about it and asked Heavenly Father to help. It wasn't that important, but it wasn't important to me. And for me to feel like, you know, Heavenly Father does hear your prayer. He does care about the things that you care about, and he will help you. And I, you know, I, I won't say that's going to happen every time, but, but I won't say it was a fluke. I, I would say there was a lot of heartfelt emotion and, and, uh, and I, I tried to follow a pattern that I'd seen in the scriptures. And all I can say is it worked. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that a lot, actually. I, I, maybe it's not the perfect use of the term, but tender mercies. Um, oh, absolutely. It's almost, you know, I, I think the hard part is when we look at the fact that there's a veil and we come to the realization that, some ambiguity and and not everything being clear as far as um, you know just blatantly seeing God in every aspect of our lives. That's intentional. We're we're supposed to have a veil over us and have to figure things out for ourselves. But we have almost like this little breadcrumb trail or whatever you want to say that God leaves us. These little moments where we we. If we're looking, we can say, I see you, God. I, I see God in that. And I feel like that's one of those. Yeah, and I think for the youth of the church, they also have to understand this, is that are they worthy of having the Holy Ghost as a constant companion? Yes, you are. And how are you? Well, because you go to church, you partake of the sacrament, which renews your baptismal covenants, that you're take upon Christ's name and you're a disciple, and that you'll always have his spirit to be with you. So if you're not doing something horribly, horribly wrong, then the Holy Ghost is always striving to communicate with you and to influence you and to change your life and to help you along the way. You have a right and privilege to expect the promptings of the Holy Ghost to be effective in your lives. And not that just by some occasional situation will something come up that you'll be able to say that was a spiritual experience, but you'll be able to feel it more often than you do now. A long time ago when I was a young man in the Institute here in Eugene, one of my uh, Institute directors said, our job in this life is to teach and condition ourselves to hear the promptings of the still small voice. 
and they're out there and they're always there. As long as you're doing those things, you're trying to live a clean life, you're trying to obey the commandments, you're reading the scriptures, you're saying your prayers, you're doing those small things, which are actually the really big and most important things to do, then the Holy Ghost is always striving, always striving to influence you and help you. And you just have to turn the dial and listen to him and, and figure out the variety of ways that he's trying to communicate with you. Because it's not just one way. There's just a, a multitude of, uh, of, of manifestations of the Spirit. I really like how he worded that. You know, he's, he's striving to connect with you. And it's, it's less an on and off switch and more of a volume dial. Yeah, you know, and it, it's coming it, in. Yeah. Yeah, it's constant. I, I believe the more I, the older I get, the more I realize that he's always trying to. That's when you say he always have your, his spirit with us. That's that's one of the blessings we get out of the sacrament. And sure enough, we have to believe that. And we have to think that, you know, he does want to talk to me. He does want to guide me. He, this is what this is all about. It's the separating of us from the natural man and becoming a disciple of Christ. Well, it's it's a it's a conversation with with deity, and it's having that um, realization that he loves me. He really wants me to improve, and he wants me to have a, a fantastic life. And how can I help facilitate that? Most of the time, get yourself out of the way, get your ego, get your negative attitude out of the way, and listen because he's striving to guide you and help you have the most fantastic life available or you can, or you can be a victim. And what's the benefit of what is the blessing or benefit of being a victim or saying, you know, God talks to some so-and-so, but he doesn't talk to me. Now, that's not true. He's a, he has no favorites. No, he, you're right. You're right. Reed. I, I think we need to go to another story here. If, if <laughs> you, because I I've got the pickup truck exit story as well. The, we, the the pickup truck exit. Yeah, can we do that one? Oh yeah, it's just a goofy one. I was once again I was on the river with Kimber, and uh, it was steelhead season. And um, uh, when you float down river, you normally hitchhike it back up to your vehicle so that you could come down and pick up your boat because that's your trailer's at. And so I went up one day, uh, we got down to the lower boat landing and uh, I left Kimber at the boat and I was going to hitchhike it back up the road a couple miles, wherever it was, to uh, our vehicle. And these guys picked me up <laughs> and uh, um, they were driving me up the road and I knocked on the window when we got toward the car and I said, that's my car right there. And they started to pull over off the road uh, to this gravel turnoff and I thought they were uh I thought they were stopping and so I jumped out of the truck and they were still doing about 10 or 15 miles an hour when I hit the ground and I just I just kind of ricocheted off the ground into the bushes and these guys stopped the truck and looked around there was I was nowhere to be found and they were looking for me and and I was just uh, buried in the bushes it was hilarious but just you know those are the kind of funny stupid things that you do in life where uh you hope nobody has a camera and they're watching what you do and you realize that you, you, you do things to yourself that are pretty goofy and you're lucky that you get away without breaking the, your, your neck or something. 
Well, you're you're lucky that they didn't have a dash cam or something. But. Oh, that would have been hilarious. I I did one of those on the lake before I fell out of a boat that I was uh, navigating one time all by myself, and uh, and I when I finally got control of the boat, got let's see, got control of the boat. I stopped and I looked around to make sure nobody else was watching because it was the funniest thing. I would <laughs> totally be embarrassed. So why did you jump out of that truck? I well, because, because he, I was pulling over to where my vehicle was. I knocked and said, "That's my vehicle." When he pulled, I just, I just jumped out prematurely. Yeah. So I, I jumped out and I thought he was going to hit the brakes, and he didn't. And I, he just rolled another, you know, fifty yards ahead. But when he did, and he looked in the back of the truck, he was there. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I was just, you know, I was eager. I didn't want to slow him down, and you know. See, I was thinking that you were interpreting that as you were being abducted or something. And you just oh, no. <laughs> no, no, I was, uh, no, I was just, I was allowing, allowing some people to, to take me on a trip up the road with, uh, with the expectation that I was just going to get dropped off. And I surely did. I dropped myself off. I'm looking at my other uh, show notes here, Reed, and I've got, Oh, scorpions and chinchillas are off t off limits for discussion. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, exactly. Well, Fine. when I was when I was a kid, scorpions scared me to death. Uh, I lived in Southern California, and my mom, after she divorced, always made sure that we did really neat things. So we used to go on archaeological digs with uh, Doctor uh, Leakey, who's one of the, the most famous of all archaeologists, Louis Leakey. We would go on with his assistant and uh, we'd go on to the archaeological digs in Southern California. And when you're in these pits digging out, digging these pits out for looking for fragments and pottery and things, scorpions in, will pop out of the wall and then just drop into the floor of the pit with you. And when I was a kid, 12 to 14, that just freaked me out. So, I, Jason, this is just if, if it ever happens, I'll kill you. But if anybody ever wanted, if anybody ever wanted to play a prank on me, you get a, a phony scorpion, and you put it in my sleeping bag or something, and I guarantee you, I will run home from wherever I am. Wow. Okay. You know, I'm not. I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's not beyond me, though. I, <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, when I found out about Bishop Marchant, the who was the Bishop of Third Ward before me. When he found out that he was afraid of snakes and he was doing a job at our house. Oh, no. We planted fake rubber snakes all over. <laughs> well, I will expect it from you. And when it happens, I'll, I'll hit you with a nine iron. When you least expect it. Yeah, it'll be more cost costly to me, actually. But I, I'm sure. Eventually. I, I like playing pranks, though. I, well, I do, too. And I think it's one of the one of the most enjoyable things i used to have a night of terror at our house when the kids were growing up i would just chase them and scare them and to me that was the greatest joy and my wife said you're gonna they're gonna have <laughs> you're gonna but it's a, it's just fun it's just a good thing to do it keeps our hearts uh, healthy wait night of terror so uh -huh. this was called it a night night of terror this was a recurring thing uh-huh and you would what dress up and like I'd hide places. I would be, and I'd always tell them I beforehand. I'm going to say, tonight I will scare you so bad. And there, and there's just guys that builds a suspense from that then on. <laughs> That's so great. I'll have to ask. So, th was this all your kids or? Yeah, yeah. 
Was Tony one night, too, or just... One night, my daughter, I, I had to, I played basketball, and I had a guy come down on my toe, and he kind of crushed my toe. But my, my toenail was going to fall off, and my little daughter, was she was probably 10 or 11 years old, and I told her, I said, Lacey, when this toenail falls off, I'm going to drill a hole in it, and I'm going to make a necklace out of it, and I'm going to put it around your neck. And she oh, no, Dad, no. And sure enough, <laughs> I did that to her. She woke up She woke up one morning screaming, and it was hilarious. <laughs> the toenail necklace. Wow. The toenail necklace. That's beautiful. I'll, I'll have to ask your other kids about scared idiots. So does, did you scare Tony, too, or is she uh, off? Well, yeah, until the kids got about about 14, 15 years old. And she said, you quit using me. You quit scaring me. She said, you got kids. Go spend your time frightening them. And that's maybe where everything got really going that way. Cause then I felt like I had five targets, you know, and I could have a good time. That's good. No, we see, I found one other thing, not that we needed more, but one other thing I have in common with you because I, I will wait hours sometimes to scare Camille or the kids. Oh, it's so worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. To me, it's like that, uh, and I and I don't use masks usually. I'll, I'll use some weird voices or sounds and stuff like that. But I just I think we used to have a game when I was in California playing. We called it Gotcha, and we the neighborhood kids and I we would live across the street from each other and just a house or two down, and we would scare each. We would hide around in the neighborhood at night and and we'd jump out at each other. And that's kind of where I started it. We started doing it then. And I had, I mean, we did it as a group of kids. It, it was just good fun. And it just, it was better than tag, you know, or anything like that. They used to play. It was, it was the creepy version of tag, I guess. <laughs> that's good description. <laughs> the twisted version of tag. Well, there's no natural way to transition to this, but some of your favorite callings in the church, I think you put young men advisors, one of them. <laughs> That you really enjoyed. Yeah, that just let me go. Like Tony said, I was called to play. Every time I, I get to work with a young man, it was I get to go play. So all of the things that we did in young men were the things I like to do. And whether whether it was, I mean, anything outdoors that we could do, whether we've climbed the sisters a number of times, we've cool. rafted probably 70 miles of the river. Oh, we've done, no, in California, I probably, we've probably done, and the shoots, we've probably done a, a few hundred miles of rafting trips over the over the years, and just and knock on wood, this is back in the day where it wasn't too deep coverage and everything like that. But we've never had anybody seriously hurt, and that's talk about tender mercies is going on these outings with men and having an, a level of risk that's moderate that somebody could get hurt, somebody could break a bone or break a leg or even worse, having these trips for 30 years as a scoutmaster and not having anybody get hurt has been a huge blessing because I've had friends that were uh, scoutmasters in Alaska who lost young men on river trips. I mean, had deaths. And I I just, that was my one prayer is that we'll always come home healthy and alive. And have had nothing but great experiences and had so much fun with young men doing things. I, that's probably what keeps me young is the blessing I had of 30 years in scouting has been a treat. And then being able to influence young men and young women to go on missions, um, because that's one thing I missed out on. I, I'm, I 
when I was 19, I was just barely getting active in the church again. And I regret not serving a full-time mission, even though I served three-year stake mission. And then I served as a 70 and award mission leader for another five or six years. Um, I always regretted. My one regret is selling my 1966 Mustang, 300 horse in California, and not going on a mission. And the mission's a greater regret than the Mustang by far. <laughs> cool. I, I love getting out in the elements with the young men as well. And Doctor, I agree with you on the tender mercies part of people staying well and, and not getting hurt. I, I have to admit too, I think we all need that. I think we need that group of men in the priesthood we need to get out in the elements away from our homes, away from the church and, and be together. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I'd, it's very powerful. I've seen some testimony experiences happen on outings that you can't manufacture at home or at church. They, uh, and I'd say the young women, I, I'm really grateful right now that we're able to do co-ed activities with young women and the young women want to do them and that we get to go out and go to places that, um, well, the young men got to go to the, uh, what was it called? Battalion. And yeah. they got to see how girls camp was run with, and at least experience some of the things that they did. And then the young women have been able to go out with us on some of these activities. And they're just awesome. And the idea of the, the young men and the women, young women having friendships together, not romantic, having friendships together as members of the church. And so somewhere down the line, there's a young man or young woman that says, you know, I'm having a problem and I'm not going to talk. I, I, I may not have a best friend that's a young woman, but I have a, a good friend who's a young man and I'm going to talk to him about this and get his take on it so that he can help me through a hard time or she can help me through a hard time. And I think we need to have, the young men and young women communicating and and being together as friends and as you know members of the church so that they can help each other because it it doesn't have to be the same gender person to that's going to help you because they understand it may be some young lady helps a young man um which is what's going to happen later on in life anyway right most of the time <laughs> um I like that too. You made me actually reflect a little bit on the changes in the youth program because I think that you'd probably agree with me on this. We're still trying to figure out how to really implement what the church is wanting to do. Um, but I think we're already seeing some blessings of it. And one is that as opposed to young men maybe being siloed off a little bit with the scout program, we can do anything together if we exactly. really want. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's powerful. I, I, the wisdom is there. I'm glad, I'm glad it is what it is. I, I, I was, I won't say I wasn't a scout fan because I was in it for 30 years. I mean, so I really supported what the church was doing at the time. And, and now the program I think is, is uh, inspiration in, inspired and about time, because I think what we're experiencing is, is that the relationships between men and women can even be um, formulated 
in an even a more wholesome environment by doing things with young men and women together than doing them separate. Yeah, I love that. What else do we want to get into here, Reed? I, oh, you had a hard time on your color question. You said your favorite color was red. Then you said clear. Then no red. Well, you you remember I'm colorblind, so I'm I'm I'm. <laughs> so I was just playing with your your questions. Uh, yeah, I I I, don't know, I guess go ahead. Should we tell them the colorblind story? Oh yeah, go ahead. Your turn. Oh, okay. I'm gonna set the stage for you, but you gotta you gotta finish okay. it off here. So Reed is. I don't think everybody knows that you're colorblind, right? And what type of colorblindness do you have? Uh, it's blue. Well, greens and browns are the same value, look the same. Blue, <laughs> blues, and purples are the same value, look the same, and reds and orange reds and oranges of the same value look the same. So oh. I, the color blindness is that you just can't distinguish the value of a color over another color. So if they're the same, if the same value, they look like to me that there's no distinction between them. And when did you find out that you were colorblind? Oh, uh, I think I found out when I was like 10 or 12 years old. Okay. So I'm setting the stage a bit for one story where a group of us, a, a group of us from the stake and kind of people who have been in the stake, we, we do a golf trip and uh, a lot of us have already kind of traveled. <laughs> oh, and we're, oh, this story. Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. Oh. A lot of us have already traveled and we're at the place that we're staying uh, <clears throat> for a few days. And you had a work thing or something like that to where you couldn't join us right away. Yeah. First, and, day, first day of the trip, I couldn't make it. Yep, and Kevin Durfee, who's in my ward, had said, well, Reed, you just take my card and you can drive over. And, and you say, okay, I'll, I'll take the card. And then I get a call at like five in the morning from oh, yeah. you. And what's going on? Um, I'm in a car at Kevin's house and I'm trying to start it and it's not reading the key fob right. It won't start. And the lights are on, and I've clicked, hit the clicker. Everything's working, and, but the car won't start. And I'm just going, "What is wrong with this?" So he, he's got his wife, his wife's car, and his car, and I'm sitting there just going back and forth. And I so I called, I called Jason, and trying to figure out what's going on. And then I call, I, I think I end up getting Kevin wakes up or something. I thought you got him up somehow, and I did. I got him up. Yeah. And so he's saying, I said, Kevin, it's not starting. I'm in the car, and it's not starting. And I can't get it. And he goes, well, which car are you in? I said, well, I'm in this this car. And he goes, are you, are, he either goes, are you sure? <laughs> or something like, what color car are you in? And I told him, he goes, no, you're supposed to be in this color car. And I I, I had woken uh, his sweet wife up already. It's like quarter to six in the morning. And I've woken these guys. And yeah, I had been sitting in the wrong car trying to start, start it with a key fob that wasn't going to work no matter how long I did. So anyway. Yeah. And I think it was, it ended up being that Kevin and his wife had similar colored cars, right? Yeah, fun. Yeah, with the close. <laughs> anyway, that's close enough to where most of us could distinguish it. <laughs> <laughs> but the nice thing is, I got to the golf course right as they pulled up. You did. You, how fast did you drive off the road? I, I, you know, I barely broke the speed barrier. Wow. The sound that's, barrier. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's cool. Cool. So you didn't go Mach 10 or anything? I did not. 
I tried. Ten point two. <laughs> I just picture you'd have the Kenny Rogers song "Danger Zone." Uh-huh. <laughs> Danger Zone. Yeah, I think I only passed. It was so early in the morning. I don't. I didn't pass many cars. I was leading the pack, though. Oh, that's good. I like it. Reed, I think we hit every story. Uh, is there anything else you want to dive into right oh, now? I'm not going to tell it. I'm not telling you any more stories. If you know if they're going to get aired like this, it's that's just not fair. No, we need, we need to come. We need to come up with some of yours so we can find out what's going on with Dr. J. You should interview me sometime. I like that. <laughs> we need to. We need Turn to. Turn the tables. Yeah, I'll just say this: that, that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I never thought life was going to be this good, and I'm I'm pseudo retired. I'm I'm right on the bubble of being retired. I've got, I've got a wonderful family, wonderful life. I I have incredible friends and associates. I, I, I am blessed beyond measure and I never thought it was going to be this good. And I've got another 40, 50 years to go. So as far as I'm concerned, I can't wait for the next day. Um, Heavenly Father's taking his time with me. I appreciate that. Um, it, it's it, like Kimber said, if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong and, uh, get rid of, I, I guess one of the best things I can say about having a happy life is we were told by the savior to fear not. And matter of fact, he even says thou shalt not fear. And when thou shalt not is in front of it, that's a commandment. And you realize that what stops people from being what they can be and doing what they can do is anxiety or fear. And and you hate to be in your life measured by the things that you had that could have been great in your life. You stop that because fear got in the way of it. Fear comes from Satan. Anxiety like that that stops you from doing the things that are great and wonderful in your life are based on Satan and fear. So if you can reduce fear from your life and not fear, put your trust and confidence in Heavenly Father this is all about your life and how you can live happy and to you can't receive the fullness of the blessings of the gospel if you let fear and anxiety get in your way and just move away from fear as fast as you can put yourself in uncomfortable situations so what so something doesn't go exactly the way you want it to you're going to experience things that are going to be the most powerful, influential things in your life, if you put yourself out there. I, I love that. I was reflecting on that not too long ago. And at least in my own time reflecting and meditating, I came to the conclusion that we actually don't get to choose to be comfortable or uncomfortable in life. Right. We're, we're going we're gonna to be uncomfortable somehow. But it's do you choose the discomfort of going to the gym and, and doing things to be healthy? Or do you choose to be quote unquote comfortable and, and not exercise and, and eat bad food only to develop the discomfort of chronic disease later? Right. You know, and that goes, that goes back to act or be acted upon, right? And which is one of yeah. the greatest things, which is, are you going to... Choose your choose the joy of your life 
is by putting yourself out there and doing things that you can do, whether, I mean, spiritual, I would never would have volunteered for a bishop's position, never. But I'll say this, if they want to make this 10 years, I'll do 10 years because the, the things I'm learning about myself and about the Savior and about his gospel is worth every minute of it. And honestly, I would wish it upon my best friend because he's <laughs> he's a bishop right now too. <laughs> and, and and I think you know, Jason, that it's true that that there is a ridiculous amount of joy in education that comes from serving at this level. And 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 it is a blessing to be able to have to be tried in this school as well as any other school, but it's, um, it, you're not going to grow if you're not, boy, if you're not growing, something's wrong. I mean, you can't, you're just going to atrophy. Like you said, you're going to be a muscle that doesn't get worked and a muscle that doesn't get work is of no use, you know? And so the Lord wants us to be a powerful instrument in his hand. And you can be either, either be a grand piano or you can be a kazoo. <laughs> You know, and 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 what do you, what do you want to be? You know, I like that. I like that a lot. Some days I'm a kazoo. I'll... <laughs> <laughs> but I I I love what you're saying about being a bishop because there's definitely those days where I feel like I'd I'd want to do it forever. Um, and part of it's serving with the youth, honestly. And I I think that some of the conversation about the youth has been negative of, of this rising generation, whether it be related to cell phones or other things like that. So I, I want to flip that as much as I can. Yeah. What, what are the positive and unique characteristics you see in the youth of this rising generation? Well, the positive ones are they, uh, they want, they want a fulfilling life. They want, they have a vision and dream of stuff that I can't even imagine, you know, and they, and uh, what I've seen is just there. The ones that aren't getting fooled by the lies that are being told out there is that the moment they recognize who, who they are and what their potential is as sons and daughters of heavenly father, man, they're just unstoppable. They, and they influence people. You talk about influencers, and you know that's a big issue in today's uh, uh, world of the internet and Facebook and everything else. Is being an influencer, they don't even understand what that really means until you see a young member of the church who has the gospel in their lives and the impact they have upon people. My granddaughter got to go skiing with us last two weeks ago, Jason, when we were up there. Yeah, Joel's daughter. And she has sure. she, she has two dear friends. I think uh, Sister Raven and Sister Matthews. And I tell you what, she lit up when she saw her dear friends that are members of the church. And she left me like uh, like Grandpa didn't matter anymore, man. She saw those. <laughs> she just abandoned me so quick. And she was with those girls and had the time of her life with her dear friends. And that's the power of youth is that they have an influence because when kids get to that age, they quit listening to their parents and grandparents and stuff like that. 
They want to hear what a young person really thinks and believes. And they, and not that they're going to sway them, but they're going to look and they're going to recognize the spirit in that person and say, there's something different about it. It's tangible. It isn't spiritual. It's truly tangible. They can see something radically different about that person and they want what that person has. That's so true. It, it's, I, I love that so much. And I, I have seen that with our own youth and the influence they have. I, I have to laugh a little bit because I heard a lot of, you know, they're calling younger bishops and I viewed myself as a younger bishop um, because I, I thought that, you know, the, me being, you know, under 40 was somehow a way of connecting with the youth. And maybe it does to some extent, you know, help me. But I remember talking with a friend who's a, a pastor at another church locally here. And uh, he said, do you, do you have young people who are leading the youth ministry? And I said, well, you know, I, I, I thought I was supposed to do that. I'm, I'm younger. And he said, you're old to them. No. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. So you can assume, you can assume what I'm like. I'm like some caveman, you know. And it, it helped me to realize that sure, maybe there are a lot of ways I can connect with the youth, and I'm grateful for that. But my role is different than the mentors that are 17 and 18, who they're looking up to, and our youth are doing that. That's the leadership they're doing. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. And they are. There's great leaders out there. I mean, you've got them in your ward. I've got them in mine. And you watch them. When we go to these activities, you watch them and they are just amazing. They they have, they see love. Love is a power and an influence. And real love, as they say, casts out all fear. But when you see somebody, and that's why adults have a hard time, when we can relate with the youth and we, they can feel our love, they'll listen to us and they'll follow us. When you have someone their same age that has that same kind of love for them, and it, I mean, there's so many of the kids out there in the church that are like that. They have that sincere love, trust is built between them, and it is a power and an influence. And it, it's a power and an influence for good for Christ. And it can do things that we can't do. And honestly, our job maybe as bishops is just to put those kids in the leadership positions so that they can do that to strengthen their own wards, to invite non-members to church, to do whatever. It, our job is shadow leadership. And yeah. Sometimes we cast a longer shadow than we should. <laughs> sometimes we should be that shadow at noonday that you know, you can see it right there. It's just that one little dot on the on the asphalt, but it's still working because the the youth know what they are. They tr they know that we trust them. They know yeah. that God trusts them, and that's all that matters. Be like Peter Pan shadow. That's always escaped. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this episode of the Connection Podcast, we're on most podcast carriers. So please like and subscribe. The show's art is done by Joel Boreen, and the music is provided by Drew Boreen. We look forward to connecting to you next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>